You may have heard it said that sex sells. And though that may be the case, um, I know that it is also true that love makes the world go around. Sex sells, but love makes the world go around. How do we know? Well, have you noticed that 90% of most albums contain songs about love? And I don't just mean 90% of all the albums in all the world, but I mean the albums themselves. 90% of the songs on those albums tend to be songs about love. Uh, Have you noticed that almost all good stories have a love story working at the heart of it? Love makes the world go around. And this is um, interesting to us, particularly this week, as our continent, and in fact, in our country now, we are seeing a um, wave of consternation and protests in the wake of uh, the unrest that is spreading across the United States in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And rightly so, I say, rightly so, that uh, we are feeling and expressing consternation these days. But you may have been seeing, like I have been seeing, so many people asking, well, now what? How can we respond beyond memes online and beyond, you know, adding our likes and our retweets to petitions that are circulating on the Internet? What else can we do? How can we affect real change? And I want to take this opportunity to say today that I believe in a world that is fractured by sickness and loss and hatred and racism and inequality... Love is the answer. Now, you may tend to think that that's a truism, but I hope that by the end of our time together today, you will see that that is not the case. Love truly is the answer. Somebody say amen. And if you hear that, you're thinking, well, how should I love? It's one thing to say love is the answer, but what should I do? How should I love? Well, my friends, I have seven answers for you today out of 1 John 4. Here it is. Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Somebody say hallelujah. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I'm not preaching that section today, but man, could you ever preach that section. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he is in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him or in her. 
By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother or hates his sister, he is a liar. She is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, for she who does not love her sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you notice how many doozies there were (laughs) in that passage? So many super famous phrases come from this one chapter, 1 John chapter 4. And um, I just wanted to say that in light of the times love appears in this chapter, um, love will appear 62 times in my sermon. I've had a long-standing habit. I'll try and turn this around so Devin can get a shot over there, a cutaway. Um, I've had a long-standing habit as a preacher of, I guess I've been preaching, what, 26 years now, babe? Something like that, a very long time. That babe was to Nikki, not to Devin. Don't get it twisted. Uh, <laughs> 26, 27 years I've been a preacher, and I have always, every time in a manuscript when I write the word love, I circle it in a heart. Um, also, every time I write the word heart, I circle it in a heart. And so hopefully you can see, not at me, Dev, I can see you in my peripheral vision. Okay, so he says he can see all the hearts. So there are literally 62 hearts in this sermon today. So uh, it's going to be a, a good one. Seven ways to love. First, um, love like you've been loved. This, of course, comes out of verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. I just love that this section starts with the word love. Be Beloved. You've heard me preach before about the fact that beloved is such a beautifully loaded word. Beloved. Beloved. If you are beloved, you should act like you have been loved because that is your name now. Beloved. You are the loved. Love because you have been loved. Love like you've been loved. Beloved. Let us love one another. The point of the gospel is very clear. You have been selflessly loved in Christ. Therefore, you ought to selflessly love one another. And yes, the word love here, of course, is all the versions and derivatives of the word agape, which is the famous New Testament word for self-giving or selfless love. You have been selflessly loved in Christ, so selflessly love one another. Now, whenever you preach this passage, you often get objections from lifelong church people who say, see, it says right there that you ought to love one another. This is really just an instruction to the church. You shouldn't take this and bend it to loving the world. This is an instruction to just love the church. Forgetting, of course, that what is the great commandment that Jesus himself gives to the church at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? Go you therefore into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. So the loved, the beloved, are meant to show the way of love to a world that has forgotten what it means to love. So don't get that one twisted. Beloved, love one another. I love that this is both personal and communal. Okay, you have been loved by God. Take that all the way to the bank. Let that change your life today. Receive it. Okay, you have been personally loved by God. Okay, it is personal. It is also communal. Therefore, let us love one another. Let your lovedness become an outward-facing kind of love. Did you hear that? Let your lovedness, the fact that God loves you, let that become in you an outward-facing kind of love. 
Okay, Pastor Todd, how then should I love? Love like you've been loved. Let an outward-facing kind of love take root in your life. And secondly, um, love like an alien. (laughs) I love that. That's a Todd point. I love coming to uh, points in the scripture that I can bend in a particular way that hopefully you'll remember. Love like an alien. Why alien? Because alien means strange. Strange means different. Different means something that we don't intuitively understand. Why? Because it is other. Verse 7, part B. For love is from God. Okay, love is from God. This means that love is other. Okay, it's not from me. It's not from you. Love is from God. Love comes from God. It is other. It is alien. And so, though thinking that love is from God means it's alien, it's kind of strange, it's kind of strange in a beautiful way because the love of God, the strange love of God, is making you strangely better. Can you testify to this? Can you see evidence of the fact that the love of God is slowly transforming you into a better person? We begin with the love of God and everything good flows from there. For love is from God, verse 7, part B. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Did you hear that? In my first year theology course in my master's degree, that just blew my mind. I think that was the day I came home and told my mom, Mom, everybody's saved. Because my professor emphasized this point so strongly. For whomever, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. God. The point here is um, beautiful. It's also poetic and a little bit lyrical. Basically, what I believe John here is saying is that God's love is making you a little bit like Jesus. God's love is making you a little bit like Jesus. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So follow me closely here. I'm going to give you a little bit of Greek, and hopefully, you can hear the lilt to John's voice. And understand why I made this connection. As I was working this passage in the Greek, it really struck me here that I think John is saying here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, part B, something that he has already said earlier in his story. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Here it is in the Greek. Esteem kai pas ho agapon, ektu theo, shegenetai, kai genoske ton theon. Okay, so that's whoever loves has been born of God. And knows God in the Greek. Estin kai pasho agapon. Ektutheu jejenetai kai genoske tontheon. Literally, if you were going to interpret this word for word into English, you would say, From God he is generated, and God he knows. This sounds a lot like another very famous, in fact, a more famous sentence in Greek. Here it is, see if you can spot it. An arche en hologos. Kai hologos en proston theon. Kai theos en hologos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As I read 1 John 4, verse 7, part B, in the Greek, I immediately heard the lyrical lilt of my friend John. Here, one more time, here they are back to back. Estin kai pas ho agapon. Ek tu kai. Ginoske tontheon, en arche, en hologos, kai hologos en prostontheon, kai theos en hologos. It was very clear to me as I read these passages in the original language that this here is the same writer using the same lyrical Greek to say the same thing. 
What is he saying? Love connects you deeply to God, just like Jesus. Okay, this is the point of in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is looking there in John 1, 1 to emphasize how closely connected Jesus Christ, God the Son made flesh, was and is to God his Father. And so naturally, if Jesus is closely connected to the Father, and if it is true that God is love, when you connect to the love of God, you are connecting to God in the same way in which Jesus Christ, God the Son made flesh, is connected to his Father. I'm trying to drive home the point here that love is what connects you to the divine life. How close was Jesus to the Father? Extremely close. Hear the words of John 14, 9. He or she who has seen me has seen the Father. Again, a key emphasis for John. Hear the words of John chapter 10, verse 30. I and my Father are one. Friends, if God is love, as you learn to love, you connect to God. If you find yourself feeling disenfranchised, distanced from God, I invite you to run a love inventory in your life and see how actively you are loving those close to you, those near to you, and those far from you. Are you actually loving people actively in your day-to-day life? If you are not, that is probably why you feel distant from God, because you are, because God is love. And when you love, that distance between you and God shrinks. You find yourself connected to the Father in the same way that Jesus is connected to the Father. And what I find extremely beautiful about this, continuing in verse 7, part B, is that anyone can do this. Whoever loves, anyone can do this. And this means a second chance. Whoever loves has been born of God. Born. You can't say born in the New Testament without thinking of the idea of being born again. Whoever, anyone can do this, loves, is born of God. You get a second chance and knows God. And we all know that knowing God, if God actually exists, then knowing him is the root, the fount of all wisdom. Love like an alien, like anyone can do it, like you've been given a second chance, like you've got some knowledge. And point number three, um, love like it's the gold standard. Verse 8, hear these words. May they strike awe in your heart and mind. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Funny, right, how we always divorce God is love from the scary part of the sentence that precedes it? We say God is love, God is love, so happy, touchy-feely, God is love. Yay, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Anyone who does not selflessly love does not know God. This is a very, very simple point. If you're going to work at anything, work at selflessly loving those around you. Okay? If you're going to work at anything, get better at learning to selflessly love. It's kind of the only thing that matters. I said it earlier in the sermon. I'll say it here again. All good things flow from this one good thing. As you learn to love God and to love those around you, all good things flow from that right equation. If you start anywhere else, you're going to screw it up. If you start with don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, you know, pick your favorite don'ts, start there, you're going to screw it up. If you start religiously with do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, all your favorite do's, you're going to screw it up. Where must you start? Where must you abide? Where must you stay? Where must you persist? Receive it in the love of God. Somebody shout. 
Stay in love with God. Learn to love his people that he has placed around you. Love is kind of the only thing that matters. Well, prove it, Pastor Todd. Happy to. Verse 4. Love like it's provable by the gospel. Hear the words of verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Did you hear it there right off the top? In this was the love of God made manifest among us. So the love of God is proved by the fact that God sent his only son that we might live through him. Put simply, the Jesus story is the love story at the root of all true love stories. That's deep. The Jesus story is the love story at the root of all true love stories. Why? Because what do all true love stories have at their heart? Somebody giving their life away for somebody else. Self-giving love. Agape love. Jesus kind of love is the love that drives all love stories. The genius, the beauty, the glory, the romance of self-sacrifice. This is what we see in the gospel, that God the Son made flesh. Jesus Christ, God's Son, gave his life in exchange for yours. That he went to a Roman cross where he suffered and died in your place for your sin. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. You know it. I know it. The problem with sin is that it separates us from God who is holy and cannot tolerate sin in any form. In fact, he must punish it because he is just. And so you have this huge problem of all these people made in God's image and likeness to be his friends forever, who because of the sin of their first parents, Adam and Eve, and because of the sin that they, that we ourselves persist in, find ourselves divorced from relationship with God. So what was God to do? Destroy us all forever? Annihilationism, is that the answer? No, certainly not. What did he do? In the fullness of time, he sent his son to deal with our sin problem. And as Jesus Christ, God the Son made flesh, hung on that Roman cross, he paid the price for your sin and mine throughout all time. The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him, and Jesus Christ, the God-man, died. But because he was God, he did not stay dead, but rose again the third day defeating in his body the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. After appearing to his friends, he was really real. He ate with them, he talked with them, he walked with them. He kept disappearing here and there. It seems like in some of the accounts he was walking through walls, very strange stuff. And then he ascended right in front of their eyes to his father's right hand where he sat down in victory. He's sitting there even now, cheering for you. And someday he'll get up from that seat to come back to make all things right, to judge the living and the dead, and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end a kingdom in which you have a place. That's what Jesus, I mean, receive it. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time today. Receive it. That's what Jesus did for you. How do you know you have a sin? You have a knot in your stomach right now listening to me speak. I know it. I'm feeling it. You can feel it. That knot you feel in your chest, that's God convicting you of sin. That's your conscience telling you the preacher is right. That's the Holy Spirit calling you to turn to Jesus today. I wouldn't be much of a preacher if I didn't give you a chance to do that right now. Let's pause the sermon. Boop. You can pray with me even now. If you want to respond to the gospel, just pray with me right now, wherever you're sitting. Jesus, I want to come to you today. I want to become your son, your daughter. 
I feel the weight of my sin. Please deliver me from my sin. Forgive me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I don't know what that means, but the preacher's saying it, so I'm repeating it. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And begin teaching me from this day forward what it means to love, serve, follow, and obey you all the days of my life. Help me, Jesus. If you just prayed that prayer with me, welcome to God's family. Make sure you send me an email sometime today. Let me know. I'd love to help you take the next step. Todd at gracecommunity.ca. You see, as Jesus' story seeps into your story, it begins to transform it so that you begin living self-sacrificially like Jesus. And what that does is prove to our relentlessly selfish world that the story about Jesus is true. Why? Because it's clearly true in you. Have you thought about this? If God doesn't exist, if the story about Jesus isn't true, why would anybody lay their life down for somebody else? What is the point of selflessness if the story of the gospel isn't true? If the story of the gospel isn't true, then we should just all do whatever makes us feel good. We should do whatever we want to help ourselves get ahead at every turn. Not so, says the gospel. Not so, says Jesus. Jesus says, lay your life down for one another like I laid my life down for you. And when a lost and dying world sees you, the follower of Jesus, doing that exact thing, it absolutely confounds them and proves to them that there is some truth to the gospel. And that splinter in their mind begins digging its way into their heart until one day they find themselves bowing the knee and coming to Jesus because of your selfless love. The love that flows from your transforming life is all the hope and the proof that our dying world needs. So point number five, love like you've been saved from destruction. By the way, no thanks to you. Here's uh, (laughs) verse 10. This is a good one. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To be the propitiation. What is um, propitiation? What does it mean that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins? It means that he became the one who turned back God's wrath. That's what propitiation means, to turn back the wrath of God. You may find yourself asking, why is God angry? I'll tell you why God's angry. God is angry because of sin. The follow-up question is simple. Well, why does sin make God angry? Because God is holy And sin is evil. If you want to prove this to yourself, just think back to the last time you got angry when somebody sinned against you. The reason you get angry when somebody sins against you is because you image God. You're made in His image and likeness. And there's something that rises up in you anytime you or someone you care about is subjected to injustice. This is why we see rage sweeping the globe right now in the wake of the gross injustice that occurred in Minneapolis two weeks ago. You are enraged because you image God. You hate what was done to George Floyd. You hate what has been done throughout the centuries to those who are weak and oppressed, downtrodden, and racially other. You hate that. Why? Because God hates it. So next time you get angry at a sin that someone commits against you, stop on your tracks and remember that that's how your sin makes God feel, except a million times worse. He's the God of the universe. We so quickly forget that God is enraged at sin and the only thing holding back his wrath is the blood of Jesus shed on your behalf. We don't think much about expiation in the modern church, but that is exactly what Jesus Christ did upon his cross. 
Okay, he paid the penalty for your sin and mine. He turns away the wrath of God, his father. He turns it away from you and he focuses it on himself. This is what Jesus does on the cross. It's like the wrath of God is to be poured out on you and Jesus, like a mirror, bounces that wrath off of you and onto himself. He is the propitiation. That's what propitiation means. And that's why selflessly loving is the only appropriate response. The story of the gospel is true, and God is real, and he hates sin with every fiber in his being, and he wants to crush it. Then you know intuitively that you deserve to be crushed because you are a sinner. So thanks be to God, there is a way for you to not be crushed because God the Father crushed God the Son on the cross when he died in your, in your place for your sins. Hallelujah. This is what propitiation means. And this is why we respond in love to Jesus, because he did what we could not do for ourselves. It's very important to remember that we did not make any of this happen. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So point six, if that is how you have been loved by a God who is love, go and do the same. This is the testimony of verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Ought to is much stronger even than ought to in the original language. In the original language, ought to means that you owe it to God. If God so loved us, we owe it to God to love one another. In light of what God has done for you, you owe it to him to love. You owe it. I know you don't like being told that you have a debt, but you have a debt. You have a debt to Jesus who loved you selflessly. And because he so loved you, you owe it to him to do the same to those people around you. You owe it to him to love others. You didn't do anything to save yourself. Okay, let's make this clear. You didn't do anything to save yourself. You don't do anything to save yourself. But once you have been saved, you must do everything you can to love others in the same way in which Jesus has loved you. Because you're Jesus, you'll never do it as good as him. He's not calling you to go to a cross. He already did that once and for all time. But he is asking you to love others like he has so graciously, so beautifully, so powerfully, so eternally loved you. Love as you have been loved. Final point, point seven, knowing that uh, as you do, you are showing God to the world and at the same time you are growing up. As we close, hear the beautiful words of verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is a little weird here. You're like, why put the point that no one has ever seen God? And is this a contradiction? Because there's times in the Old Testament where we see some of the great biblical heroes seeing God. They see the back of God. They see the angel of God. That is not what John is here saying. He's here saying no one has ever gazed upon or no one has ever taken the full measure of God. No one has ever, that's much easier, isn't it? Much better, right? Helps. Okay, it's not a contradiction. No one's ever taken the full measure of God. So why would he say this? Because if we love one another, God abides in us, which means that God remains with us, which means that God stays with you, which means if we take this literally, then right now God is standing with me. That he's backing me up as I preach his word to his people. That he's sitting with you in your house as you hear the word of God preached for your benefit and joy. 
He, he stays with you. He's in your living room. He's in your bedroom. He's in your kitchen. He's in your backyard. He's with your kids. He's with your parents in their nursing homes. He is with you. God stays with you. And if God stays with you, then other people are going to see him with you. This is why John is saying no one's ever seen God, taken the full measure of God. But as we love God, God is with you and the people around you will see God expressed in your life. Here's the big take-home point for today. God, receive it. God comes to stay in hearts that love. I mean, you could drop the mic right there. And as he stays with you, he perfects or matures you. And that is something that people notice. So get out there this week and love like you've been loved. Love like an alien, like anyone can do it, like you've been given a second chance, like you've got some knowledge. Love like it's the gold standard, like it's provable by the gospel of Jesus. Love like you've been saved from destruction. (laughs) No thanks to you. Go and love like you've been loved, knowing that as you do, you are showing God's to the world while getting better and better because God's love stays with you when you love like he loves. Or put another way, uh, love is the answer.